Welcome to All Things IDD, hosted by the ARC of Wichita County. On this podcast, we share resources for those with intellectual and developmental disabilities and their families, raise awareness, as well as create a space for stories by and about those with disabilities. Today's episode is part one of two with Dr. Frank Del Rio talking with us about behaviors, why they exist, and how to effectively approach situations with behaviors. How many times have you been on the podcast now? You know, I don't even know. I think maybe four or five. Yeah, I'm glad to have you back. We um, always learn a lot from you. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Today, I'd like to talk about behavior. Um, Behavior is a concept that is misunderstood by many people. And so I want to talk a little bit about how we can deal with behavior and assist children and adults with their behavior. As a starting point, I want to change the narrative around behavior that it's not good or bad. I know that's how we like to treat it, but behavior is usually more communication. When people have a behavior, it's something we see. You don't see mad. You don't see sad. You see what people are doing. And so they're communicating. So when we start with that premise that behavior is communication, that gives us a good starting point as far as handling behavior. So what I want to do is talk about some things that we can do to help with behavior. And in starting with that, one of the things I want to understand or explain is ABC. That stands for antecedent behavior consequence. When we deal with behavior, you have a behavior. It might be hitting. It might be crying. There could be a lot of different behaviors that occur. But the antecedent is what led up to that behavior, what caused it. That's one of the things we want to try to figure out. And that's the most difficult step sometimes. After that, when we've determined what that is, then we figure out the consequence. What are we going to do about the behavior based on what we've learned about what caused it? That's kind of one of the, very simplified. That's the premise behind ABA, which is Applied Behavioral Analysis. And that's kind of the biggest evidence-based treatment for children with autism and adults with autism. So it really is important to work on trying to find out why these behaviors occur. But for our meeting today, I'm going to talk a little bit about behaviors and things that families can do and schools for that matter and working with kids and adults. So one of the things I want to start with is by saying that it's important to keep rules simple and easy to understand. A mistake that a lot of people make is they make their rules too complex. And so it's easy for kids to get confused. It's easy for adults to get confused. And so they make errors. Um, There are also people that they already feel like they're judged. So there's a lot of our population that they don't want to feel stupid. Um, They've been teased or had people give them a hard time. And so... A lot of our folks would rather look bad or like they're acting up than stupid. So to give an example, if a child is asked to do a problem at school and the teacher says, come do four plus four on the board, there may be some girl in there maybe he likes and he doesn't know the answer. He does want to get embarrassed, so instead he throws something. And so out of context, you see he's acting up. He gets sent to the principal's office. We've handled the problem, but you really haven't because Johnny would rather look bad than stupid in front of this girl he likes. So without knowing the context of it, that's kind of the problem we're dealing with behavior. So we want to keep rules simple, easy to understand, and understand there's a motivation behind them. We'd like to discuss the rules and write them down. A lot of the population that we work with are visual learners. So 
It's been shown in some studies that even kids who can't read, when you write down the rules with them, they seem to understand it better. It's an interesting phenomenon. So we really want to do that. And I would also throw out that when you're making rules, encourage the kids or the adults that are involved to be involved in setting the rules. Because there's something about being involved in making that gives them a little bit of ownership. And when they're taking part in making the rules, they're a little more likely to follow them. Also, any rules that we have, we want to repeat them often. You don't want too many rules. Too many rules can get complicated and it makes it harder to follow. So we want to keep our rules simple, short, easy to understand, and not a whole lot of them if at all possible. Um, when you're in a classroom setting or even at your house, if you have a way to have a visual picture of the rules, that's a good thing too. So a few rules that might be good are help each other, take care of our toys, take care of our belongings, say please and thank you, and be kind to each other. We don't want real complicated rules, but just basic rules that make it easier for our kids to cope and will make it easier for them. Because one thing we do know is a, a lot of the folks that we work with have trouble with socialization skills. It's one of the biggest deficits that we run into. And so we want to start out from an early age. And if we catch them when they're older, that's fine too. But as soon as possible, teach them these social skills type of rules. Another important thing is to say what you mean. You want to make sure that when you're talking to a child or an adult and you're explaining things, that they know that you mean what you say. Um, I'll give you an example. If I tell somebody, if you don't do this, this is going to happen and I don't follow through, they have no reason to believe me. If I promise something to someone and I don't follow through, they have no reason to believe me. We want to make sure that we're consistent and that the people we're working with understand that we're, we're going to follow through with whatever it is we're doing. I'll give you an example of this. I had a family I was working with that the parent told this child, he was really struggling in school, told him, if you pass all your classes, then we're going to go to Disneyland. And so the child went to tutoring, did all good, passed it. And the parent said, well, I don't have the money to take him. I really didn't think he could do it. And so in their mind, they're justified because they thought there's no way he's going to do it. And of course, he's crushed and doesn't believe anything they say. And you can't blame them. Another important thing I probably should have let off the podcast with this is I'm a huge fan of positive programming, positive reinforcement. And this is probably one of the most important things I'll say in this podcast. We want to be as positive as possible. People learn more from positive. They connect more with positive. They do better. So when we can use the word do more than don't, will instead of won't. As much as we can, we want to put things in a positive manner. We want to try not to be negative. We want to choose our words carefully on how we say things. So I'm going to give you an example. When I say focusing on what to do rather than what not to do and being positive, instead of saying stop running, I can say slow down and walk. Instead of don't touch anything, I can say come hold my hand. Instead of don't climb on the table, keep your feet on the floor. And instead of saying stop yelling or stop shouting, which a lot of us do, say use a quiet voice inside. So we're saying the same thing. Or to give a better example, I'm going to say two things the same way and I want you to catch the difference. 
if you don't eat your vegetables, we're not going to have any ice cream. As soon as you finish your vegetables, we're going to have ice cream. Those are the same exact statement, but hopefully you can pick up the difference and one is going to go over a lot better than the other because both mean exactly the same thing. But the positive connotation means you're going to have less resistance. Some of our kiddos with autism automatically have a kind of a resistance to some behavioral challenges anyways. So it kind of cuts down on some of those barriers. So we want to go with the positive ways of putting things. Another thing I want to emphasize is when you're talking to the folks on our um, on the spectrum and folks with IDD, is you talk with them, not at them. I see families, teachers, even staff sometimes, generally staff that are fairly new, that do this. They tend to just talk at someone like they're there instead of communicating and connecting with them. When you're talking or shouting at someone, they're usually tuning you out. Guidance is more effective when you talk to people at their eye level. Look them in the eyes, which for some people with autism doesn't work real well because it's kind of painful for them. But for the kids that, or the adults that can do that, you're making that connection. Touching them on the shoulder, talk with them. Resist the, the urge to lecture. It's really hard to do, especially when you feel like you have an important point to get across. But you want to make sure that you have a relationship and you're having a dialogue that the other person feels like they have a say in. Because if it's all, I'm going to talk and you're going to listen, all that sounds like is you're getting on to me all the time. And any of us can relate to what that would be like. We tend to tune people out. If somebody's yelling at you a lot, um, not speaking for me, but other people, you might be in a relationship, whether it's with a spouse or with a friend. And if they're yelling and screaming at you or your child, for that matter, when you're yelling and screaming at your child, are they taking it all in and thinking, this is good information mom is giving to me? Or are they thinking, what do I need to do to get her to shut up? And how much longer is this going to go on? And I assure you more than we'd like to think about is the second one of those. So we want to make sure that when we're communicating the information, that we do it in a way that's going to be positive so that we can connect. Because again, when we're dealing with behavior, what I'm looking for is long-term change. Short-term change is easy. We can make a child or an adult change their behavior for 30 minutes or an hour, but ideally we want to change it for good. And so that's where the positive comes in because positive praise and positive programming assist in getting things done better. Along those lines, you want to set a good example because the folks in our lives watch us all the time. Um, whether it's an adult or a child with IDD, they learn from you. You are their role model. They see how you talk to other people. They see how you talk to other adults. They see how you cope with your anger or frustration. When you're yelling and screaming because you're angry, then we probably shouldn't be surprised when our kids do that also because it makes sense. That's who they're learning from. They watch how you deal with sadness and joy. They see what, when you say you're sorry, you're, you're actually feel contrition and you feel bad about something. How do you express that? The way you handle the ups and downs in life teach your kids and adults in your life how to behave and get along with others. Because a lot of times you're their biggest role model they pick up the most from. I feel like, you know, gentle parenting is like a pretty like popular thing right now. And that's kind of the approach we attempt to take the best that we can. You know, there's moments of frustration where it's like, I don't have the patience. Um, but, you know, I also see with like gentle parenting, like a lot of pushback on that of like, 
well, if you're always doing the positive and you're always, I don't know, I guess I'm curious, like, what what you would say to somebody that's like, I don't know if positive is teaching them how to, like, be tough or, you know. Well, what I would say is there's been, there's been a lot of empirical evidence gathered on positive programming and things like that. And it's not that you're not going to have those moments that you're teaching people, you know, the way to handle things in it. I mean, there's going to be negative experiences they have. The problem is when people look at that and they talk about gentle parenting not being effective, what they're missing is we tell our kids or people all the time, you didn't pick up your coat, put you, you didn't do your homework. We do that all the time, but we don't always look at what do they do. For instance, I'll give an example you might have a child that doesn't take out the trash and you tell them about it. Maybe they didn't take out the trash twice that week. Did you tell them about how appreciative you were the times they did do it? And a lot of people say, well, no, because they're supposed to do it. Well, when you're working with disabilities and really anybody, we all want to hear positive things. So it doesn't mean you don't talk to people about the things they do wrong. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have negative interactions. It means we need to have the positive ones also. As a general rule of thumb, I tell people you should say 10 positive statements for every one negative. And that is extremely difficult for folks to do. But it never hurts to tell somebody you appreciate something. I appreciate you picked up your coat. You did a good job helping me stir the macaroni and cheese. Whatever it is, especially our population, they eat up those positive interactions because so many of the kids that we work with and the adults, have a lot of negative interactions already, whether it's the public or at school. There's a lot of negativity. Even in the world in general, there's a lot of negativity. So I don't know that we can ever have too much positivity because we're not saying that there's never going to be some negative conversation or things like that. What we're saying is there needs to be more positive. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you an example of that. Um, I had an individual that their family said they hadn't taken out the trash in three months. And so I talked to the child and I said, what I'd like you to do is I want you to take out the trash every single day and I'll see you in a week. And the parents said, it doesn't need to go out every day. I said, I understand, but we're trying to build a mindset every day. Even if there's nothing there, it'll cost you a couple of trash bags. I want the trash to go out every day. And so a week later I saw them and I said, how did you do? And he said, I did it four times. I said, well, that's great. You did it four times. Mom's like, I don't think you understand. She said, that means three times. He didn't do it three times. I said, I said, I'm not sure you understand. You came in here and told me he'd done it zero days out of 90 when we started. Now he did four out of seven. A little quick math tells me that's 50 out of 90. Wouldn't we all agree 50 is more than zero? So it doesn't mean he did a perfect job. That means he did a better job. We've all heard the saying, Rome wasn't built in a day. And your perfect child or your obedient child or the person who's changing their behavior or the way they do things, that's not done overnight either. It's done in small incremental steps. And the way we handle things and the approach we take, especially with the positive approach, is the best way to get the long-term solution. What a lot of folks miss when they talk about, well, we need to get real and we need to use some of the negative and get onto people is, and again, I'm, I know I've said this earlier, but when we're negative about how we handle things, I can tell you there are people who are against spanking, people are for it, but I can tell you, I'm going to spank you. I'm going to ground you. I'm going to do whatever. And that can solve my behavior for a day or two, maybe a week or two. But if it really worked long-term, 
then I would say, okay, well then go ahead and ground them for whatever it is. That way you'll never have that problem again. Does it ever work that way? No, because negative deals with an immediate problem, but doesn't serve the, solve the problem long-term. And that's truly what we're after, especially for our kiddos and adults we work with, because we want to set them up as, as well as possible with life skills and be able to cope with the public, especially since socialization is already a negative for them. Yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. And I, I think it's just like good advice to like, I don't know, I feel like I can be critical or judgmental and it's it's good to remember grace and like seeing the positives and how uh yeah yeah i love that that uh analogy and that example another thing we want to do is give clear simple choices maybe what we do is let someone choose between a red cup and a green cup give choices only when there is a choice don't give someone a choice if you don't really want them to have one if you want your child to have milk don't say, would you rather have milk or water? Because they might choose water. So you only give a choice when there truly is a choice. And I'd encourage you to do that as often as possible. Um, one of the things that's really important with the population we work with, and a lot of people, is power and control. That's important to note because a lot of relationships revolve around power and control. We all want power over our lives and we all want control over our lives. Kids don't have a whole lot of it. Kids and adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities have very little of it. So the more control we give them, the better. So when we give them choices, we're still kind of limiting what they have, but they have a say in what's going on. And a lot of times that's really what they're looking for. So we want to try to give them some choices. It also makes things easier because especially kids on the spectrum, too many options make things complicated. And so when we say you can have this or this, We've made it a lot simpler on them because now they've only got two choices to make. And if you say you can have McDonald's or Burger King and they say, well, can I have Pizza Hut? Then you can still go that route if you choose to, but you're making it easier. I'll give you an analogy that a lot of us might be able to identify with. Um, you're going out to lunch with some coworkers and someone says, um, I don't I don't know where to go. Where do you want to go? I don't care. We can go anywhere. Where do you want to go? I don't care. Why don't we go to Burger King? Well, I don't really want Burger King because I don't feel like a hamburger. Well, where do you want to go? Well, I don't know. Where do you want to go? And then we do this for 15 to 30 minutes because there's so many choices where sometimes it's easier to just say, Samurai, yes or no. Just throw it out there. That's in essence what I'm talking about on a smaller scale with our kiddos because a lot of choices, even for us, sometimes makes things complicated. Another thing we want to do is catch the children and adults we work with being good. Again, this goes back to the positive I'm talking about. It is really easy for me to see when somebody leaves something lying on the floor. It's very obvious. We also know we're going to address it because we're good parents. We're going to address the shortcomings of our kids. We're going to correct their behavior because that's how they learn. And I'm not going to say we shouldn't do that. But we also want to tell them what they're doing good. Give them the attention for the good. I'm proud of you for how you acted in class. I know it was hard for you to wait in line, but you did a good job being patient. Our kids eat up that praise. The adults we work with do too. We want to give positive attention for good behavior, and that's better than negative attention for misbehavior. Comment about something positive about everybody every day. If it's an individual or adult you work with, that's a pretty good rule of thumb. I'm probably selling myself out to my coworkers if they're listening to this podcast, but I make that a point to do that to everybody I work with every day. So now they'll know that it's kind of something I go into the day doing. But I think that's good. It sets you up as 
having a positive relationship with people. And studies show people find you as warmer, friendlier, happier when you go at it that way. So it's really good to do with anybody, but especially with the folks with our population. Another thing I'd like to do is encourage you to tell our folks when you're working with them, treat them like a coach instead of a cheerleader. And what I mean by that, a cheerleader says things like, what a great job, what a beautiful picture. That's good. Do that stuff because we want to do that. But when you're a coach, I'm telling you what I like and why I like it. For instance, I might say, you did a good job setting the table. You put the spoon and forks in the right place. You remembered the napkins. So now I'm telling you the good, but I'm telling you what I like about it. Then they just really, that grows. This painting you did looks beautiful. I love the way you put the blue and the red and stuff like that. Tell me how you did it. Just things like that. Um, if you have children, you can just see how they're beaming when you're talking to them about this. It's just kids love that stuff. And it's one of the interesting things is when we're working with kids and adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, a lot of the principles are really similar to working with regular children. Um, it, it brings us kind of to a point that people are all people. The folks we work with have some significant challenges, but that's all they are is challenges. It doesn't make them any less human. So that's why a lot of the principles are the same. We just do things a little bit differently, but they but they're still have the same desires, the same wants, the same needs, the same everything. And I think sometimes folks that don't work with our population tend to not catch that. And sometimes parents, you get so focused on your child, you kind of miss that stuff too. Another thing that we can do is use play activities to teach social skills. One of the things we do at the ARC and most programs that are working with kids and adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities is work on social skills. Now, our kids are already going to school all day, so they don't want to do more school. But the thing is, social skills is a deficit, and I've mentioned before and probably a couple times, it's one of the biggest deficits we run into. So we want to try to present social skills in a fun manner. So how do we do that? Become a character in the children's pretend play and show or show and tell. Read children's books that show how children resolve problems. Play what if games. Encourage children to act out ways to work together. Play activities are always a good way when we're playing dolls or playing with other, uh, other things. It could be PJ Masks or Door to the Explorer where we can do different things. And when you use your doll, when you're playing with your kids, because I know all of you like to get involved with your children. When you do this, you can have your doll say or do something to see how your child reacts. And that gives you a real time view of how they would handle that circumstance. So maybe I have Boots and Boots is saying, Dora, I think we should go and hit that child. Then what does Dora say? And we get an insight into how your child thinks or how the individual thinks. So teaching social skills that way is a good way to kind of get some insight also. We want to teach our kids how to resolve conflict and solve problems. Of course, as a parent, we try to take care of our kids and our adults. We don't want them to come to any harm and we try to solve their problems for them. But sometimes we do a disservice because we really aren't going to be around forever and we're not going to be with them everywhere they go. So we want to teach them how to resolve conflicts and solve problems. How do we do that? We help them recognize and name their feelings, to identify problems clearly, come up with ideas for solving the problem, and try to find possible solutions. And when we talk about that, there's some simple concepts about it. Like for instance, learning a person's point of view. Point of view is kind of a really important thing 
that is underestimated a lot of times. But I'm going to give you an example. And if you'll uh, humor me, this is a long example. But I'm going to tell you a story that all of you have heard since you were a kid. The forest is my home. It's always been my home. Everybody's always treated me good here. But one day, this little girl in a little red outfit came into my house taunting me with a bag of goodies and stuff. It smelled good. She did, but she kept the hood on her head and ignored me, probably in some gang. So she's walking. I stopped her because she came into my house. She didn't ask permission. She just came in all being rude. And she gave me some story about going to see her grandmother, but she sure did look suspicious in that red gang outfit. So I followed her to make sure what was going on. So then she got to the grandmother and I ran ahead because I want to tell grandmother, look, there's this lady saying that she's doing this. And grandmother said, you know, it's, it's legit, it's fine. But grandmother never gave my side of the story to say that I come to check on her. So grandmother did agree her granddaughter did, did need to learn a lesson that she needed to check with people before going in their home. So she hid in the closet. But again, you never heard that part of the story either. So I substituted for her and got in the bed. And then she started being mean to me. She said how big my eyes are and how big my ears are. Now you see how I'm getting irritated. She breaks into my house. She starts being mean to me. What would you do? I know I should have had better self-control because Dr. Frank tells me I need to resolve conflicts properly. But I got mad and I said, I'm going to eat you. Now, let's be real, guys. Wolf would never eat a little girl. We all know that. But that little girl started screaming and yelling and everything. One of the neighbors heard he came with the axe, and I realized I was in a little bit of trouble. So I ran out the window. The grandmother never did tell my end of the story. So I don't know about that little girl, but I didn't end happily ever after. The end. Hopefully most of you recognize that story. That is the little, uh, little Red Riding Hood from the wolf's point of view. But isn't that different? Obviously it's an exaggeration, but my point being then when working with kids and working with adults, point of view makes all the difference. And so when you have a conflict, especially with kids with intellectual and developmental disabilities or adults, you have to understand that the point of view makes all the difference to them too. Because when you're arguing with somebody, if they see things differently, unless you resolve that discrepancy, you're hitting your head against a brick wall. And that's where a lot of our behavior challenges come from, is that we come from two different points of view. So when we go back to resolving conflicts, it's one of the first things we can do. And if I can give a quick tip, it's going to help you with your marriages, your relationships. 50% of your fights will disappear with these two tips. Listen to the other person's point of view and shut up when the other person's talking. You do those two things, you will solve so many problems. And there's a long list of other things we can do we won't get into. But those two things alone will make things so much easier. Listen to the person's point of view. Now, when I say listen, I mean, consider it. Whether they're right or wrong, consider what they're telling you. Because even if you don't agree with them, if you listen to them, maybe they'll listen to you and then they'll get insight. And then if they say, you know, I hadn't thought about it that way, then be gracious about it. Say, See, I told you, if you don't listen to me, it's all about how we interact with people. The next thing I want to talk about is apologizing. We all make mistakes. Our kids and adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities are going to make more than their share of apologize of mistakes and they'll have to apologize. But learning how to apologize is a skill. We kind of take it for granted because what do we tell everybody to say? I'm sorry. Everything goes away if you say I'm sorry. And that's not how we present it, but that's how kids take it. 
and that's not just kids on the on the spectrum or kids with IDD. A lot of people think if I say I'm sorry, it's better because you'll even see them tell you, I said, I'm sorry. Why am I still in trouble? Thinking that's like a get out of jail free card. So we don't want to do that. They have trouble understanding other kids' feelings. But by the time they're four, they should start recognizing that apologizing is a good way for hurting someone. Want to keep it simple? Lucas, I'm sorry I hit you. Just keep it short and to the point. With time and practice, kids don't have to be prompted and their apologies become more genuine and they can learn how to apologize properly. And again, apologizing to your friends and other people is a key social skill that our kids need to learn. So there's like four basic steps. Look at the person, say their name, and that's a, a psychology trick, if you will. Anytime you use someone's name, they feel more connected to you. Whether things are good or bad, they feel more connected. So looking at someone and using their name is a really neat trick. Almost every salesperson learns this early on. So look at them, say their name, say, I'm sorry, say why. It's real easy. I'm looking at you. I say, Johnny, I'm sorry that I took your toy. Johnny, I'm sorry I ate your peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Whatever it is, it's that short and simple, but it's a very important skill for them to learn. We want to teach the folks we work with how to correct their misbehavior. And this is going to sound a little rough to some people, but if a child throws food onto the floor, give them a broom and show them how to clean it up. If they draw on the wall, give them a wet cloth to clean the wall. Even if they can't do it successfully, they can participate. Participating in the cleanup, participating in the consequent of their behavior helps people learn self-control. Now, I'll give an example because um, I worked in the Helen Faraby Center system for 30 years. A lot of great people over there. And uh, that's another podcast I think we had not too long ago. But there's a lot of really wonderful people there. But I worked there. One of the things I did is I oversaw some group homes. And I had an individual that he would constantly, he'd get mad at the staff and he would pee on the floor or defecate on the floor things because the girls that were working there would then have to clean it. And so he had a way to show them he was mad at them. And so he had some power in his mind. When I found out about it, I told him, nope, from now on, he does it. I mean, of course, there's some different rules you have to go through. But after that, once he realized he was going to have to participate, that ended that really quickly. Um, and so there is something to be said for even children and adults. I know a lot of folks like to clean up after their kids and say they don't know better. How will they ever learn if we don't teach them? So I'm not saying be mean to your kids, but they need to learn accountability. I'll be honest. One of the failures that as parents with kids and adults with adult with IDD, one of the failures we have is sometimes not teaching the folks we work with accountability. Yes, they might learn things a little slower. They may have some difficulties with some information, but we don't want to make it where they feel like they can do anything they want because that's not a realistic picture of the world. And if they go out thinking that way, they're going to have a lot of resentment and challenges with other people. Thank you so much for joining us today. Be sure to subscribe to All Things IDD so you can listen to part two with Frank. As always, be good to yourself. <laughs>